Okay, so speaking of children, my four-year-old son, David, came home from church a few weeks ago with a picture that he had drawn of Jesus. And as many of you know, our children's ministry team spend a lot of time talking about Jesus as the good shepherd. That's what they do a lot back there. And so David had drawn a picture during Sunday school of Jesus in kind of a shepherd's outfit. looked a lot like Beth's, actually. And he was holding a sheep. And I showed David's uh, teachers this picture, and for them it was really good news because apparently it's the first time in over a year that David has drawn anything in Sunday school other than cars and trucks. Uh, So, you know, every week they have a time after the Bible story to reflect on the lesson and to process it through artwork or through the materials that are there, and David has always just drawn cars and trucks, is what he knows. So it takes time, you know, for these stories uh, to get inside of us, whether you're four or 40. It takes time for the story of the gospel to uh, begin to come out of us when we're drawing or when we're cooking or when we're parenting or whatever it is that we do. And that's what happened for David a few weeks ago. And he brought home this picture, and he had written my name at the top, Mom, so I got to keep it. And I actually have it hanging in my office right now because it really, it moved me deeply. Um, Something about the picture really struck me. And it's that in the picture, Jesus was smiling. He had the sheep with him, and his arms were up like this, and he was smiling. And I thought, how many of us, myself included, if we were to draw a picture of God, would we draw him smiling? When you imagine Jesus in your mind, is he happy to see you? Or is he kind of like low-key disappointed in you? And what does that say about our understanding of who God is? Many of us have internalized a vision of God who frowns. Or if he's not frowning, he at least just tolerates us. But today's gospel reading depicts a God who rejoices. The parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, they tell us really the whole story of the gospel in two parts. First, God has come to seek and save the lost. He takes the initiative to find us. We tend to think of religion as man's quest for God, right? But Christianity is about God's quest for man. And maybe you grew up in a Christian environment and this is old news to you. You know, yes, of course Jesus came into the world to save sinners, we know. But I think that many of us have internalized that story in a way that says, yeah, God comes to find us, but when he finds us, he's kind of annoyed. He saves us, but really, we should be ashamed of ourselves for wandering off in the first place. And we better not let it happen again. So here's where the second part of the gospel comes into play. And really, this is why Luke's parables this morning are so important. They reveal that not only will God always come for us, but that when he finds us, he smiles, he rejoices, like this. If you've ever lost something precious to you, you understand this. You know that the desperation of the search only increases the measure of your joy when you find that thing that was lost. That's the primary focus of our gospel reading. It's helping us to see the God who says, rejoice with me. In fact, the whole story starts with Jesus at a dinner party. That's the context. He's enjoying table fellowship with the lost children of Israel who had begun to be drawn back to him, tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees are uncomfortable with this. It says in verse 2 that they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. 
So Jesus responds by saying, let me help you understand why we're celebrating right now. Then he tells these stories about something valuable that was lost and found, and how this corresponds to the way Jesus feels about sinners who repent. Now before we take the low-hanging fruit and talk about all the ways the Pharisees get it wrong, let's talk about what they get right here. They are right to care about sin and to see it as a problem. I think it's increasingly common for us, both in the church and in the West generally, to equate a smiling, loving God with the dismissal of sin. We look at our own scriptures and we say, see, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, so what's the big deal? If God is love, the reasoning often goes, doesn't he accept everyone as they are? Well, the issue with this, of course, is that it's based on a false definition of love. No parent in their right mind would say, I love my children, so I'm going to smilingly affirm all their choices and remove all boundaries from their lives. Why? Because this would not be good for them. It would not be loving of me to let my four-year-old drive our minivan, which he badly wants to do. (laughs) It would not be loving of me to let my six-year-old exist entirely on a diet of candy, which he badly wants to do. I could go on, I have many examples. Sometimes in our effort to believe that God smiles at us, we think that must mean that we aren't lost to begin with, or that if we are lost, God will just wink and look the other way. But that misses the point entirely. The shepherd loves the sheep by acknowledging its lostness, not by dismissing it. He doesn't say to the one who wanders away from the 99, he doesn't say, well, you do you, Follow your own truth, little sheep. I just want you to be happy. No, he says, following your own truth will get you killed, so I'm coming after you. This is the true character of love. Love is unafraid of conflict and even confrontation if it will result in our rescue. And that's how Jesus loves us, by naming our lostness and then calling us to repentance. Not so that we can be ashamed of ourselves, so that we can be restored. And that's why he's celebrating at table with tax collectors and sinners in our story, because they're responding to that call. They know their need for forgiveness and correction, and they're receiving it. And in this way, they get something right that the Pharisees get wrong. The Pharisees take sin seriously. They understand the call to holiness, but they have trouble seeing how the call to repentance applies to them. So Jesus helps them as he tells these parables in two ways. First, he casts God as characters in the story that the Pharisees would not naturally identify with. So it was common in rabbinical teaching for other religious leaders and teachers, if they were listening to a parable, it was common for them to see themselves as the authority figure in the parable. You know, they were the power holders in religious society, and therefore they were the protagonists in their own minds. So naturally, they would identify with that role in the story. But in Jesus' parable, the God figure is a shepherd, a poor and lowly leader, one of the least admired members of society, not exactly the kind of protagonist that a Pharisee would identify himself with. And in the second parable, God is a woman, and not just a woman, but a poor woman for whom the loss of one coin is a crisis. In depicting God in this way, Jesus is gently helping the Pharisees to see that God is not just like them. 
Actually, God is so different from them. Indeed, God is so different from who they imagine him to be that they must learn to see themselves as the ones who are lost. They must repent. They must change their minds and learn to see God differently than they have up to this point. And then Jesus helps them in a second way, in verse 7. He says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who need no repentance. Now, the point here would be obvious to any good Jew, and that's this. There is no group of righteous persons who need no repentance. The whole Jewish system was built on the principle that from the least to the greatest, even the holiest member of society, the high priest, everyone needed God's forgiveness and cleansing. So Jesus is challenging the Pharisees here. He's asking them, do you think you don't need repentance? It's a fair question. Now, we rarely identify with the Pharisees today, right? Nobody wants to be seen as legalistic or judgy. That's considered kind of passe. What's currently in vogue is the opposite of legalism, which I would call licentiousness. It's a disregard for the traditional mores, the rules, in exchange for a kind of laissez-faire morality, the sort of do-whatever-makes-you-happy mentality that I mentioned earlier. And then, of course, quite ironically, uh, we create a new sort of legalism around our license, right? And then we become the very thing we were trying to get away from, which is judgy. So we toggle back and forth between these two extremes, and I think there's a reason for that. I think that in many ways, legalism and licentiousness share a common root, which is a deep fear of shame. Think about it. Whether you are running from any kind of call to holiness or whether you're trying to control it, either way, you're afraid of falling short. One approach tries to avoid God's judgment by pretending it doesn't exist. There is no God. There's nobody up there to tell me I'm doing it wrong. The other approach tries to avoid God's judgment by being perfect. But they're both a response to fear. And the point of these parables is that both legalism and license cut us off from the very thing God wants to give us, which is his joy. Repent and rejoice with me. That's the invitation. So we don't need to be afraid of our lostness because on the other side of it is a celebration. It's the God who smiles at us. So friends, don't be afraid to admit that you are lost. Don't be afraid to repent. There is no shame waiting for you, only grace. The parables are proof of this. And there's more than one parable for a reason. Actually, in this chapter, Jesus tells three stories about recovery of the lost. We heard the sheep and the coin, and then right after this is Jesus, probably his most famous parable of all, the prodigal son. These three stories in succession describe what Bishop Robert Barron calls three different kinds of lostness. So the coin is kind of an inanimate lostness. It doesn't even know it's lost, it's a coin. But sometimes people fit into this category too, because we don't know what we don't know, right? Now the sheep knows it's lost, but it's helpless to do anything about it. Sheep are easily distracted. They're not very smart, so they tend to wander off and then get stuck in a ditch, and then they panic. And all they can do is helplessly kind of bleat until somebody comes and pulls them out. So maybe you've been there. You identify with this kind of lostness, the kind that says, Lord, I don't know how to get out of this ditch. Help me. 
And now the prodigal son is lost in a different way still. His separation from the father is the result of willful, premeditated rebellion. He shames his father by requesting his portion of the inheritance without even waiting for his father to die. And then he goes off, as the story tells us, to a far country to squander his wealth. It's hard for us to even imagine the kind of insult that this would be to an ancient family. And Jesus tells the story of this spurned father running to his son to welcome him back home, as if to say, yes, even for this kind of lostness, even for the ones who have cursed my name, there is grace. And what's more, there is joy. There will be a celebration. So whether you are the coin or the sheep or the son, or maybe a combination of all three, there is grace for you. And in case it's not obvious, let me just say this doesn't only apply to our initial conversion. The Christian life begins with repentance and rescue, yes, that's definitely in view here, but our conversion doesn't end there. This isn't a one and done, this life that we're living. The Christian life is a series of conversions. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We are daily being renewed, daily transformed into his image, which requires an ongoing posture of repentance. It requires an expectation that in this journey of following Jesus, we're going to get it wrong, a lot, and that when we get it wrong, he will come for us. It's not an accident that these parables come right after Jesus' words about the cost of discipleship. Last week, we heard Jesus say, count the cost, Take up your cross and follow me. And here, it's as if he's letting us know, by the way, you'll fall short of this. You'll miss the mark. You'll go astray. But I'll rejoice when I find you again and again and again. This is our story. And we get to practice it every single week when we confess our sins together. When we acknowledge the ways we've gone astray, that we are still falling short of the call to holiness. And then every single week, Jesus invites him to celebrate with him at his table, to come to the feast that he has prepared for us. And this is where the whole thing is headed. Do you know that? The destination of the Christian life, the telos, is the table, it's fellowship. It's friendship with the God who smiles at us. It can be easy in all of our talk about sin and repentance or discipleship and the cost and how hard it can be. It can be easy to lose sight of the fact that the gospel is fundamentally the invitation to a party. Now that's one reason that I love Alpha. Alpha reminds me of this. It's a place for people who are exploring faith, either for the first time or maybe they're reevaluating some things they've believed. It's a place where we put the gospel in front of people and then let them work through it themselves. We've got a new course coming up in just under two weeks, so Alpha's on my mind. And the context, the way we do all of this on Alpha is over a meal. We set a table for people to come and to be known, to be enjoyed, to taste and see that the Lord is good. This is the gospel for them and for us. So in closing, I want to leave you with a question. What is keeping you from receiving God's joy? In what ways do you struggle to believe that God smiles over you? 
I can't remember if I've shared this story before or not here, but it stands out very strongly in my memory, and it was during my college years, I was volunteering at a Young Life camp, which is sort of an outreach to teenagers, and the speaker was saying something to the students about how valuable they are to God, how much he loves them, rejoices over them. And I just remember that as he was saying those words, it was as if I saw them come toward me and then bounce off. Like there was some kind of invisible force field deflecting God's love and delight. And I remember thinking, well, that's interesting. I wonder why that is. I wonder why I can't receive this message, like really receive it. It's a question that took me a number of years to work through. To some extent, it's a question I'm still working through. These things take time. The story of the gospel takes time to get inside of us, and that's why we practice it over and over again. It's also why we need community. We need other people who can help us reflect on these hard questions and who can call us out when we're settling. If you don't have someone or someone's like that in your life, I encourage you to move toward others in the church. Join a small group or reach out to one of the clergy or come do Alpha. These things are not a silver bullet, uh, but they're just one way we can put ourselves in the way of grace, one way we can put ourselves in the posture of repentance and conversion. And we all need that. Now, maybe you've been doing this work You've got community, and you have really come to know God's joy for you, but maybe you've just gotten really busy. Maybe you are working hard to set the table for others, and the invitation for you is to stop and remember to celebrate. Remember to celebrate what God has done and is doing in and through you. He says, rejoice with me. Not later when everything is done, but even now in the doing. Receive his joy. Or maybe you're here this morning and the whole notion of joy just doesn't really fit the season that you're in. Maybe you're in a season of lament and you don't even want to think about God smiling because you need to know that he's weeping with you. And if that's you, let me just say this. Lament is real and it is valid and it matters. But it will not have the final word. The Bible says that God bottles our tears and that one day, he will wipe them all away. The enduring reality of our life in God is not sorrow, it's joy. God's joy over us and for us and for this world that he is making new. And to receive that right now is not to rush past your sadness or to pretend that it's not there, but it's to remind yourself of what's to come and even of what in some mysterious way is true now more true than all that is broken and all that is lost is the joy that heaven is holding for you, even if it feels like it's just holding you by a thread. And I've been there, I understand, and I want you to know that your grief does not diminish God's delight in you. We are invited to receive his joy at all times. So whether we weep or as we work or as we wait, let us keep the feast. Amen.